And thank you, band, and welcome again to Journey Church International on Mother's Day. And let me say, uh, let me say two things before we start. Uh, first off, let me say once again, Happy Mother's Day. But let me say to all of you, I talked to my mother this morning, uh, who lives just uh, about an hour south of Chicago. Um, and every year on Mother's Day for the past three years, uh, my mom has struggled because three years ago she lost her mom. So let me say to those of you here today who have lost your mother, uh, and I know that there are, uh, that there are many of them, uh, you're in our thoughts today, you're in our prayers, and we know that Mother's Day, even though it's a, uh, is a great day, it's a tough day for many uh, because uh, today some of you just in the last year, just in the last few months, uh, have lost your mothers, and some of you it's been a few years, but today remains a very, very difficult day for you. So can we start today just by praying for those today who, uh, who have lost their mothers, uh, just praying that God will really give them peace today before we jump into our Bible text this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name today, and Lord, we, uh, we thank you for all the moms and the grandmas and the great-grandmas who are here today and the influence that, uh, that they've had uh, on our lives and just the world around us. And, Lord, I specifically pray right now for those mothers who, uh, Lord, who, who and, and those men and those women who have lost their mothers this past year, uh, Lord, or even many years ago, and today remains a difficult day because on the day when you celebrate mom, mom is not here. So I pray for every man, every woman, um, Lord, every, uh, every young single in the room who today is celebrating Mother's Day without a mom. And, Lord, I pray that you'll give them peace today. I pray that you'll give them comfort uh, and, Lord, today I pray that today will be a special day of memories of what their mother meant to them uh, and all the uh, great times they had with their mom. And I just pray that maybe through being at church today, their spirit will be comforted even in the midst of a difficult day. We love you. Let's see things in Jesus' name this morning. And everyone said, Amen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 today, if, uh, if you have your Bibles. And if you do not have your Bibles, our ushers are going to go down the aisle and they're going to pass out Bibles. If you're brand new and, and you just you don't have a Bible, uh, wave at the ushers. They'll give you a Bible. This is yours to keep. Uh, if you just forgot your Bible today, you can borrow one. Just wave at our ushers. They'll give you one. That way you can follow along as we read God's Word together. Then at the end of the service, you can just throw it on the table if you want. But every Sunday at our church, we're going to open God's Word. We're going to study God's Word. We're going to read it. We're going to teach it. Hopefully, we're going to write in it. By the way, we handed you a pen and... We handed you a, a little sheet of paper like this that we call sermon notes so you could take notes today. Feel free if we just handed you a Bible to write in that, to write in that Bible to take notes uh, because we want to hold and touch and feel and understand God's Word uh, at this church because we believe that God's Word really changes lives. And today we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 1 uh, celebrating a, a message that I changed halfway through the week. Uh, I was going to preach today on mothers, and I was going to highlight some great mothers of the Bible, and I was going to try to take today to really celebrate moms, which is more than appropriate to do on Mother's Day. Uh, but about halfway through the week, I thought, you know what, I could take one day and really celebrate mothers in a message by preaching through the Bible about, you know, some key mothers in the Bible, or I can take today to train the people in our church to celebrate mothers every day and to uh, really help mothers and women and people in general uh, to really be the type of Christian that 365 days a year, by our life, by our actions, by our attitudes, 
really honors a mother for being a mother, a wife for being a wife, um, really honors somebody for their everyday life, not just once a year. So I've got a message today titled, What a Woman Wants. And we're going to look at the mothers that I was going to first look at as, as we study Matthew chapter 1. But then we're going to walk away from the women and we're going to look at the men in their lives and what those men provided for them that allowed them to really live their fullest potential for God. So my goal today is to train everyone in here today to love their mother more, to love their wife better, to, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you're a single woman in here today, today's message should be kind of a roadmap of the type of man you're looking for to marry one day. If you're a single man in here today, today's message should be a roadmap of what you should be before you're ready to go and marry someone. And really, just as a Christian, the principles we're going to learn today, these are the types of principles that every Christian should live in their life. If we do this, I think the world will have a whole lot more respect uh, and a whole lot more admiration for Christians if we would live our way according to the principles that we're going to look at today. So we're in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read an, a, an interesting text because it, it, if it's in your Bible titled like mine, it says the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Really, we're just going to read who he was related to. And there's a whole lot in this theologically and there's a whole lot in this doctrinally, but we're just going to pull some practical stuff out of it. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 together. Then we're going to read through uh, verses 12 through 17. And then we're, we're going to make a few notes on, uh, on what we see that sticks out to us. It says, this is the genealogy. If you have a Bible, uh, you might want to circle that word and just write family tree. That's all that Matthew's trying to do. Matthew's trying to connect the dots for us of who Jesus was related to to help us understand the importance of who he was in life. So this is the genealogy. This is the family tree of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. I want you to circle that word there. Tamar. That's a woman's name. It's the first time we read in Jesus' family tree the name of a woman. We read someone's mom's name. Um, Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Like I said, this is just a family tree. It doesn't, doesn't mean a whole lot at first read. Uh, Ram was the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. I want you to circle that word, Rahab. So there's the second mother we're introduced to in Jesus' family tree. Now, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. I want you to circle the word Ruth. There's the third mother we see in this family tree. Ruth will be one of the women we look at in depth today. Uh, Obed became the father of Jesse, and Jesse became the father of of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. I, would, I just want you to circle that phrase, mother. They didn't put her name in here. They should have her name was Bathsheba. We read that in the Old Testament. But we don't get from Abraham to David, probably the two most important biblical Old Testament characters, without learning the mothers that connected them. Uh, I want you to move over to verse 12 in your reading. We'll skip a few names. It says, After the exile to Babylon... Uh, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtel. Shealtel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud. Abahud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. I want you to circle the word Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. 
Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to the Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now here's the real interesting thing about the book of Matthew. I want you to notice, and you'll see this on your sermon notes. This will be one of your fill-in-the-blanks. I want you to notice that in the family tree of Jesus, we were given the names of five women, really four plus Bathsheba. We weren't told her name because of the embarrassing story that went on uh, behind that. But here's what's so interesting. There were four biographies written of Jesus' life. Four men chose to write the story of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all wrote to kind of different crowds. They had different friends. They ran in different groups. Uh, And Matthew specifically was writing to all his Jewish friends who were deeply rooted in Old Testament Judaism. They were deeply rooted in first century Judaism. And here's here's what's interesting about first century Judaism and specifically about Matthew mentioning five women. Uh, In first century Judaism, uh, in the ancient Near East, like it still is in many Middle Eastern places today, Uh, Women had very little value. Uh, Women were not really recognized publicly. Uh, Women were at that time not even allowed to testify in a court of law. Their testimony held no purpose. And I was shocked to to show you the, I mean, just the the distance that they still have to come. Last week when we were in Israel, uh, we went to the Wailing Wall. I've got a picture of that that Wailing Wall for you. There's there's kind of our, our group there. And here's the only reason I wanted to show you this picture. Hold it up there for a minute. So this is one of the most famous spots in Jerusalem where you can go. And you can see all the people praying at the Wailing Wall. This is the western wall of the old temple where Herod was. But right in the right-hand corner of the screen, I want you to see that wall there. I had been to the Wailing Wall three times before I noticed the wall. And I asked somebody, what's the wall for? And they said, oh, that's where the women pray. The women aren't allowed to pray with the men in Israel. Now, this is 2,000 years after Matthew chapter 1, and women are not even allowed to pray at the same place that women go. Go to the next picture, if you would. We took a tunnel, we, we, we took a tour underneath the tunnels of the old temple, and there's a spot 50 feet underground where in, in Judaism today, they still believe the Holy of Holies from Solomon's temple still resides. It literally is 50 feet underneath what now is the Muslim Dome of the Rock. Uh, they believe that that's where God's presence descended and it's entombed and locked there until the Messiah comes and reopens the temple. And this is the closest spot really on planet Earth where you can put your hand and be near the Old Testament Holy of Holies. And this is where the real Orthodox people in Israel go to pray. And as we were walking through that section, I realized on the way there and on the way back that there were only women praying. And I asked our guide, I said, like, if this, like, this is the holiest spot on earth, why is it just women? He said, all the men pray upstairs. The women are not allowed to pray with the men. Now, I need you to understand, you can take those pictures down, I need you to understand the culture to understand how crazy it is that Matthew, in trying to connect the world to the family tree of Jesus, would mention women. Because in this culture 2,000 years ago, and still a little bit in this culture today, women were not recognized and respected the way that God intended them to be. But here we read the story of Jesus, and here we have in the story of Jesus, Matthew says you can't understand Jesus' life unless you understand the mothers associated with Jesus and the impact that they had. And the truth of the matter is there's no one in the world who can have their story written without something being written about a mother, because it's how we all got here. So today we want to talk about mothers, but here's what I want to do. I want to take two of these mothers specifically. And what's really interesting is that the, uh, the first two women mentioned in Matthew chapter 1 were prostitutes. Uh, Tamar got pregnant, posing as a prostitute, really living as a prostitute. 
We know Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. Um, and then Bathsheba, who, who we find mentioned right after Ruth, Bathsheba was, was just a woman who got caught up in an adulterous affair with a powerful man. But Ruth and Mary, Ruth and Mary are two women whose backstory we know very, very well. And they're two women that as we look at their life, we're able to see extremely difficult circumstances in their life, but circumstances they were able to live through because God gave them someone in their life to support them, to love them, to lead them, and to live with them. And as we look at the eyes, through the eyes of Ruth and Mary today, at a message that I've titled, What a Woman Wants, here's my challenge for everyone in the room. Um, For everyone in the room that has a mother, my challenge to you today is pay careful attention. Because the way that you can honor your mother the most 365 days a year is to be the type of person that I'm going to present to you today. If you're a husband in the room today, the greatest way that you can honor your wife as a husband today is by becoming the type of man that I'm going to talk to you about as we look at the life of Joseph and as we look at the life of Boaz. You become this type of man and you will honor your wife uh, 365 days a year. If you have children, um, as a parent, this is the type of parent you want your kids to be able to look back and say, man, this is the type of parents that I had. They had these characteristics in, in their life. Because what I want to do today is I want to honor mothers today because it's Mother's Day and we need to. But what I want to do is live to make their lives easier and more blessed for the rest of the year as well. So what we're going to talk about today through the eyes of Ruth and through the eyes of Mary, we're going to look at the life of Joseph, Mary's husband. We're going to look at the life of Boaz, Ruth's husband. And we're going to see the men behind the women that, uh, that it took to bring Jesus, the Messiah, to planet Earth. So what are the characteristics of what a woman wants? What are the characteristics of what Ruth needed and what Mary needed to live through the difficult circumstances that they lived through? Number one, they needed people in their life that were spirit-led. And I chose my words very carefully here when I wrote the words spirit-led down for your message outline. As a matter of fact, I had a different word, and I changed it. I had the word spiritual, and I thought, you know, that's not really what I mean. I'm I'm not saying that a husband needs to be spiritual. I'm not saying that a dad needs to be spiritual. I'm not saying that a son trying to honor his mother needs to be spiritual. There's a difference between being spiritual. We think of spiritual as, oh, I love God, I might go to church. We think of spiritual in today's day and age, it's kind of the same thing as religious. I'm not talking about being religious. I'm not talking about being spiritual. I'm talking about being spirit-led. I'm talking about somebody who follows God. In Matthew chapter 1, if you still have your Bible, we begin to read the story of Mary and Joseph, and we find out the type of man that Joseph was, both in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 24, and then again in Matthew chapter 2, we see that Joseph was a man that we we could characterize as spirit-led. You say, what does that mean? That means Joseph was a man who sought out what God wanted him to do, and when he found out what God wanted him to do, he did it. And in many times, at least the three we're going to look at now, God actually came and spoke to him through an angel. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 20, Mary had just gotten pregnant. We find out that Joseph, uh, later we'll look at another characteristic, but he thought, you know, the baby's not mine. I know it's not mine. He was just going to divorce her. But in verse 20, it says, After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's going to give birth to a son, and you're going to give him the name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when Joseph awoke, 
He did, if you have your Bible, I want you to underline this next part. He did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. He did what God told him to. And he took Mary home as his wife. One of the first things we read and know and understand about Joseph is that he was a man who did what God told him to. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, we see a very similar narrative. Uh, when, uh, it says, when they had gone. Um, now we find out that, you know, if, if you're thinking Christmas in your head, the wise men riding in on their camel. In the Bible, they're called the Magi. They come to visit Jesus. But Herod sends a spy to follow him so they can kill Jesus once he finds out where he is. Um, and so when it says they, we're talking about these wise men, the Magi, when they had gone. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt. The first two stories in the Bible that we read about Joseph, the father of Jesus, the husband of Mary, was this. God told him to do something, and he did it. See the character that Matthew's building. Here's what you need to know about Joseph. When God told him to do something... He did it. We read it again in verses 19 through 21. After living in Egypt for a while, afraid that Herod was going to come kill his son, it says in verse 19 in Matthew 2, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt again and said, get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. We don't know much about Joseph, the father of Jesus, the husband of Mary. We know very little about him. We know he's a carpenter. We know originally he was probably from Bethlehem. He was living in Nazareth, perhaps doing some work. Maybe he was in Nazareth building homes or something. We don't know what he was doing. But here's what the Bible wants us to know about Joseph. Matthew gives the most extended dialogue about Joseph. And Matthew says, let me give you three pictures of Joseph so you can know who he was. And here's the picture I want you to see of Joseph. When God told him to do something, he did it. He was spirit-led. When God told him to do something, he did it. Now, many of you men would say, many of you people would say, well, if an angel came to me in a dream, I would do it too. But I've never had an angel speak to me. Well, in, it doesn't always take an angel. When we look at the husband of Ruth, his name's Boaz, we find out that Boaz was spirit-led because he knew God's word. You don't have to turn there in your Bible, but in Ruth chapter 3, you can if you want, if, you, if you're used to flipping in your Bible. Uh, but in Ruth chapter 3, we read the story of Ruth and Boaz. And we find in Boaz a man very much like Joseph that just wanted to do what God had called him to do. And Ruth is so thin, I can barely find it in my Bible. There it is. Only four chapters long. Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. It says, One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be provided for. Now Boaz, with whom, with whose women you have worked, He's a relative of ours. And tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's laying. Go and uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. Now let me stop right there and just give you a little bit of backstory. Ruth's only four chapters long. We don't know much about it, but here's what we know. There was a family in Israel that had to move across the Jordan River to the land of Moab because there was a famine there. This lady named Naomi had two sons. Her sons met two women in Moab. They got married, uh, and then they both died. Now, the daughters-in-law stayed alive, and when the famine was over, Naomi went back home. One daughter-in-law said, I'm not going with you. I'm going to stay here. Ruth told Naomi, I'm going where you go. You, I'm going to follow you because I trust your God. So they get back to the land of Israel. They're two women who are broke. 
They don't have anything. Uh, Naomi's husband has died. Ruth's husband has died. Uh, and basically, they become beggars. I mean, that's the story. The first few chapters of Ruth, they get home, and they are just, after people harvest their grain, they go out and find what's left so that they can just have enough to survive. Uh, and she finds out one day that one of the fields she's picking in, trying to find just enough food to survive, is a man named Boaz, a real spiritual man in Israel who's pretty well off. They find out that he has a heart for Ruth because he knows Naomi. He had known her husband. So Naomi tells Ruth, listen, this guy lives for God and basically tells Ruth, I want you to go propose to him. So this is, this is the story we're reading this night. Go down to the floor, uncover his feet, let him know you're there, show him your intentions that, hey, you're available and you would like to be married to him. We don't totally understand the context that it's in because of the world we live in, but that's the story we pick up. Verse 5, Ruth said, I'll do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor, that's his barn, and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, and he was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pot. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you're a guardian redeemer of our family. She basically said, will you take care of me and my family? I have nothing left. Will you take care of me? Verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you all you ask. All the people in my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who is more closely related than I am. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I'll do it. Lie here until morning. Now, here's what's really interesting about this backstory that you have to understand. The only way that Boaz could have given this answer to Ruth is if he clearly knew, understood, studied, and read God's word. And when he was presented with an opportunity to do something that was 90% right, Boaz stopped and he said, Ruth, I understand what you're saying, but here's what we're going to do. Ruth, we're going to do this the way that God's word says that we should do this. And if God leads us to do this, we'll do it. But Ruth, we're going to do what the Bible says first. So I want to show you the picture of these two men in the lives of Mary and Ruth. You have one guy who, lead, who leads his life by this phrase, God told me to do this, so I'm going to do it. You have a second man who lives his life by this phrase, the Bible says this, so we're going to do this. Now, husbands, let me ask you this question, because originally I was going to pose it to your wives, but I thought, you know, I don't want to ask the wives. I, I want to ask the men in this room. When is the last time that you stood before your family and said, here's a decision I'm making because I believe God told me to? Men, when is the last time you stood before your family or your boss or your job or your kids and you said, you know what, here's the situation we're facing and here's what God's word says we should do? You know, if you study churchianity today, there are twice as many women who go to church as men in America. The women have become the spirit-led leaders of this country and of our homes and of our churches. And there are very few men anymore who are seeking God enough that they'll be able to go to their family and say, God told me to do this. There are very few men who will be able to go to their kids or their kids' friends or their wives or their family and sit down and say, you know, I was reading in God's word and here's what I feel like God's word says to us as a family and how we should operate as a family because of what God's word says. 
And you know what? If you want to bless your wife, men, if you want to bless your mother, children, begin to seek God's will for your life and become spirit-led. If you want to bless your family and be the person that God has created you to be in leading your family and loving your wife the right way, be the type of man who can go to your wife and say, you know what, I was praying the other day and I feel like God spoke this to me. We have a shortage of spirit-led people in our world. We have a shortage of spirit-led men in our world. Because there are very few people that are reading God's word enough to be able to go to their family and say, you know, I was reading the Bible today and I really feel like God spoke this to me. You can't say that if you're never reading the Bible. There are very few men who, who pray enough and seek God enough that they can say, you know, I've been praying about this for three weeks and here's what I feel like God revealed to me. You see, as we look at the life of Mary and as we look at the life of Ruth, these were two women who had it tough. But they had two men in their life who were spirit-led, who followed what God told them to do. Let me ask you, men. Do you know God's word? Do you make the decisions you make in your life because of what the Bible says? Do you know God's word? Do you believe God's word? You know, a lot of people don't necessarily get into God's word a whole lot because they're not sure if it's true. I mean, I got real convicted about this a few weeks ago when, when I was asked questions by several people in our church at the same time, kind of dealing with issues of, well, I know what the Bible says, but is, you know, is that true? I thought, man, I've got to teach our people why they can trust the Bible and and know that the Bible is true. And on Good Friday, we had kind of a a Good Friday extended teaching and worship service about the cross and forgiveness and how all that worked. And we're going to do about four of those Friday services a year. We won't call them all Good Friday because only one actually happens on on that day. We've actually, as a a staff team, we've committed to calling that service the well. Uh, Because of John chapter 4, when Jesus told the woman at the well, there's going to be a day coming when people worship in spirit and truth, kind of extended times to worship in spirit, extended times to study the truth. And we're going to have one of those, uh, the well services this fall, right after school starts. And we're going to take three or four hours just so that I can help you understand why you can trust the Bible. Because I was talking to one of our men whose neighbor asked him the question, well, how do you know that the Bible's true? And you know how to answer that question. Do you know how to answer that question? Hey, you know that the Bible's true. I mean, it's one thing to say, well, the Bible says this. It's another thing to really believe that that's what God wants you to do. And if we're going to be a church, and if we're going to be a people, and you're going to be a husband, and you're going to be a child, and you're going to be a person who's spirit-led, you have to live in the Word of God. You have to believe that what the Word of God says is actually God's will for your life. And you actually have to pursue God in your life. So what do women want? Women want to be led. Women want to live with. Women want to have a partner at their side who they know is close to God. And and who can say in a difficult situation, here's what I believe God wants us to do. Here's what the Bible says we should do and to move forward. Mary and Ruth both had that. Secondly, and some of you are thinking, man, Christian, you came out of the gate with the biggest one. I mean, aren't there like more simple things I can do? If you thought number one was hard, number two is even more difficult. Because here's the second thing that women are looking for, somebody who's sensitive. Some of you are thinking right now, listen, I'm all for reading the Bible and I will begin to pray. But this sensitivity stuff, man, I just I don't know that that is me. When we look at the life of Mary and when we look at the wife of Ruth and here, here's here's the truth. I mean, if we were just to be honest today, there are some men in here who are very spirit led. They read their Bible. They pray. They believe that God speaks to them. But but they are like sandpaper when it comes to being sensitive to their wife and their children. 
And when we look at the life of Joseph and we look at the life of Boaz, we find two men who are highly sensitive to the needs and the reputations and the life that their wives have. In Matthew chapter 119, if you're still in Matthew, you should just be able to turn there because we've kind of been living there uh, the whole time. We see that Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant. He didn't do it, which by itself had to really turn him for a loop. Um, but it says in verse one in Matthew one nineteen, this tells you the type of man that Joseph is. It says because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, which means he had a good biblical reason to divorce her. She's pregnant; it's not mine. She probably had an affair. Um, yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, so he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now the law said she could have been killed for getting pregnant out of wedlock when it wasn't his baby. But the Bible says that because Joseph was sensitive to her needs, he, he was going to do it quietly because he didn't want anyone to think badly of his wife. When we pick up Ruth chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, the exact same thing is true of Boaz. Ruth is laying at Boaz's feet. She says, hey, here's what I've got going on. Will you take care of Naomi and I spiritually? He says, I need to do what the Bible says I should do, so let me, let me make sure I do everything right. But then he said this in Ruth 3, verses 14 and 15. So she lay at his feet until morning, but she got up before anyone could be recognized because Boaz said, no one know, must know that a woman came out to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing, hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley, and he placed a bundle on her. Then he went back to her town. Here's why Boaz did that. Boaz said, listen, I don't want anyone to think badly of you. I don't want anyone to think that some woman came down to the barn where all the workers were hanging out at night after a, a good night of eating and drinking. So in order to protect your reputation, you need to make sure you leave before anybody wakes up because I don't want anyone to think badly of you. Joseph, the exact same situation. Mary had done something that I'm sure horrified him when he first found out about it. Can you imagine your fiance guys coming to you and saying, hey, I'm pregnant but I haven't been with another guy. It's God, so just trust me. I mean, how would that work on your psyche sleeping that night? I mean, you would pray that an angel would show up and tell you something because that, that would be highly confusing. But it said Joseph was sensitive to Mary's needs. Listen, I don't understand this, but here's what I understand. I don't want anyone to think badly of Mary. I don't want to put Mary in a bad position. I want to make sure that even as I make my decisions that I take care of Mary. Boaz was the exact same way. Yet two men who cared more for their women than for their own comfort. You had men who cared more for their own women than for their own freedoms of what they could have done, what the law allowed them to do. These were men who were highly aware. And I want you to listen to this, men. These were men who were highly aware of how their actions, their habits, their hobbies, and their lives impacted the women in their lives. You know, some of you men have things in your life that you're free to do. They're not wrong spiritually. But you doing them is putting a lot of stress on your wife. Whether it's staying up late to do X or playing 14 rounds of golf a week or doing something that's making their life more difficult. You live a life that's highly structured. You live a life that's your time, on time. I'm going to do this. And you never really think about how it impacts your wife. And your wife can be buzzing all over the city, killing herself, trying to take care of your family because you have not been sensitive to go to her and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Is this okay? 
Is it okay if I go to the Royals game twice a week? Is it okay if I play five rounds of golf a week? Hey, is it okay if I have a poker night with my buddies? Hey, is it okay if, uh, if I get into this or I get into this? Hey, is it okay if I run a marathon this year? Because that means, you know, for every Saturday for six or eight weeks, I'm probably going to be gone for four or five hours. Is that going to be okay with you? You see, we have two men in Joseph and Boaz who say, I'm going to make this decision based on what is best for my wife. I want to quit my job. I want to get a raise. I want to do something else. I mean, I'll never forget in the early stages of getting ready to start this church, we, we were being mentored by about a half dozen pastors. And every other Thursday, we'd get on a three-hour conference call with a pastor from somewhere around the United States that planted a church that was less than five years old. And one of the pastors who's become a great friend and mentor of mine, he's got a church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Their church is seven years old. They still meet in a school. Actually, they meet in two schools now. Uh, because they, they've got two campuses. They run 2,500, 3,000 people uh, a week, and he's my age. We actually lived in the same dorm at Liberty University for a little while together. And he said five years into his church, he realized that he had spent most of his time on his church, not his family, and he went to his wife. And he said, now, every time we make a church decision, I go to my wife and say, are you okay with us starting another service? Are you okay with us starting another campus? Are you okay with me adding another this to our ministry? Because if this doesn't work well with you and our family, I won't do it. And he said, I will leave my church before I'll do something that makes my wife's life harder. And I thought, man, that is a sensitive leader. Someone who's just always double-checking, how's this going to impact you? And I want to make sure and make a decision that's going to first and foremost protect you. So we look at Ruth and Mary, and they both, they both had men in their life who were spirit-led. They did what God told them to. They did what God's Word said they should do. They both had men that, uh, that were sensitive. And you say, well, I just, you know, I, I wasn't raised to be sensitive. Look, the Bible says that a spiritually mature person is sensitive by nature. Say, so where is that? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. When we read about what the Bible refers to as the fruit of the Spirit, what is that? The, the fruit of the Spirit literally means the actions of a spiritual person. That's what that means. What are the actions of a spiritual person? According to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, the actions of a spiritual person are love, joy, peace, forbearance, that means patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, if you put all those together, you see the picture of someone who's very sensitive to someone else's needs. You say, well, you know, I'm just not a very patient person. Listen, here's, here's what I want you to insert into this text here. Any one of these fruit of the Spirit that you're not, because this is what, and actions of a spiritual person are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Good. Say, oh, I'm just not a very nice person. I'm just not very kind. Here's how you should replace that scripturally. I'm just not very spiritual. Because the Bible says a spiritual person is kind. They're friendly. So if I'm not very kind, what you're saying is I'm not very spiritual. Well, I just don't have a lot of patience. Here's what you're saying. I'm just not very spiritual. Because the actions of a spiritual person are that they're patient with people. So I'm just, I'm just not very spiritual. You say, well, you know, I'm not really the gentle type. I wasn't raised by the gentle type. I'm a man's man. I'm not a gentle person. What you're saying, according to Scripture, since the actions of a spiritual person are gentleness, what you're saying is I'm not a spiritual person. Listen, at least be honest with yourself. Quit blaming the way you were raised. Quit blaming your dad or your granddad or your football coach or your marine instructor for how you're... And just be honest. If the actions of a spiritual person are this... I'm just not very spiritual. See, spiritual people are sensitive because they're kind, they're gentle, they're good, they have good self-control, they're peaceful, they're patient. That's, that's not me. That's what the Bible says. 
So as we look through Scripture, we should see this is not just a husband to wife, parents to kids, people to mom. This is Christians to the world. We're sensitive. We care about how what we say impacts other people. Uh, you know, I was at the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Because some of you think, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not very spiritual. Is that a problem? Well, it's, it, it's not a problem, but we need to get moving forward on that. Uh, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane a, uh, about two weeks ago on the last days of Jesus' life. Um, and the Garden of Gethsemane is just a huge olive grove for those of you who have been there. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a grove of olive trees, which I didn't know that until I was there. And David Cole, who was with us on the trip, who's been to Israel 16 times and who was leading our tour, uh, said, you know, it takes 40 years for an olive tree to produce their first, its first olive. And I thought, wow, 40 years without any kind of spiritual fruit. And I believe that when Jesus talked about trees that don't bear fruit, what he was saying is, you know, look, some of you are on your way, but it might take you a long time to really start acting like a Christian. So be patient and just keep moving. Some of you have friends who have become Christians, and because they don't act like Christians, you wonder if they're even Christians. Give them time. Some of you have a spouse that comes to church with you, and you just wonder if they'll ever get it spiritually. Give them time. Because sometimes it takes a while for the fruit to come out. But if you are a Christian, here's your standard, Galatians 5, and 23. Spiritual people act this way. Sensitivity is something that a spiritual person has. Uh, and then finally, so what do women want? Well, what does the world need? We need people who are spirit-led. We need people who are sensitive. But then number three, what does a woman want? What were Joseph and Boaz? They were servants. They were servants to their wives. They were servants to their families. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, just for picture's sake, because when I saw it, I thought I never knew that, we actually saw some ancient 2,000-year-old mangers uh, in Israel, and I took a picture of one. Um, that it, they literally look like retaining wall stones. And, it, you know, we have like the little picture of the little wooden thing filled with hay. This is what a manger looks like, and this is what they were used for. They were horse troughs. This is uh, one of Hezekiah's palaces. It's probably 2,500 years old, and they recreated some of the stables. That is what a manger is. So that's what Jesus would have been placed in when he was born. Now, that is beside the point. The, the point is that Joseph was a servant. So how do you know Joseph was a servant? Because I drove last week from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea. And that was a long drive in a car that went, I don't even know how fast it went because it was in kilometers. So I, yeah, I, I never knew how fast I was going the whole trip. But like 110 kilometers, if that's speeding, I don't know. Um, but but it, it went fast and it was a long trip. Can you imagine that trip on donkey with a wife who's eight and a half months pregnant? Listen, if you if you want to give someone birth control... Let them hang out with somebody who's about eight and a half months pregnant. And they will understand that, uh, that this baby thing is, is difficult. Um, Joseph had to have been the world's most sensitive servant to slowly work his wife from Nazareth in Galilee south to Bethlehem in Judea. 
He had to serve her. I'm sure they stopped a lot of times. I'm sure he carried her water. I'm sure he carried her food. I'm sure Joseph on this trip waited on her hand and foot. Let me ask you, men, those of you who are married, or you know, maybe young men, those of you who still are living with your mother because you're fresh out of college, you're a young professional, when's the last time you served your wife or your mom, waited on her hand and foot? See, I'm looking over Danielle's head when I'm saying this because I can't make eye contact with her right now because... I'm not sure what that answer is for me because I've been out of town. I've been really busy, but I I promise I will in the future. Um, (laughs) When's the last time you served your wife hand and foot? See, on Mother's Day, we do that. Well, it's Mother's Day. We ought to serve mom today. No, according to Scripture, these women had men who they were just, they were servants. When they needed someone to help, they helped. In Ruth chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when Ruth first went out to Boaz's field just trying to find something to eat, It says, Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting. Follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you wherever you, and whenever you are thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Boaz said, listen, I've been watching your life. I've been watching the people you interact with, and I have gone and I've told everyone that you interact with in your world to make sure and take care of you because you're with me. You know, men, some of us have people in our wives' life who are causing them a lot of havoc. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a, a boss, a coworker, Maybe it's our children. Um, you know, our job as men, one of the ways we serve our wife is by making sure that people in the life of our wives and of our mothers are treating them the correct way. Uh, it's, it's watching over every area of their life and stepping in. Anytime you see an area where they look like they need help, stepping in and saying, hey, I've taken care of this for you so you don't have to worry about it anymore. See, Joaz, uh, or, uh, Joseph and Boaz were both servants. Men, here's one thing I want you to ask your wives at, uh, at lunch today when you go out to lunch, and hopefully you've got lunch planned somewhere with your mother or your wife's mother or uh, your wife and your kids. I want you today to specifically ask your wife this question. How can I serve you and our family better? If if you only do one thing out of all of this message that you've heard, ask this one question. How can I serve you and our family better? Can I get up earlier with the kids? Can I start taking one of the kids to school? Can I run so-and-so to basketball or gymnastics? Or how can I I help make your life easier? How, How can I serve you? You know, this thought of being a servant to our wives, uh, for those of us who are husbands, to our mothers, for those of us who are kids, um, is probably the closest thing in today's message to a specific biblical command given in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. And here's what Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says. It says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing and the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Verse 25 again, husbands, love your wives just as in the same way that Christ loved the church and he gave himself for. Love your wife because loving your wife will make her better. Love your wife. Serve your wife like Jesus served the church. So we had been in Israel four days before we finally as a group got to Jerusalem. And we saw things that Solomon built and we saw the you know, where the battle of Armageddon will take place from the book of Revelation. And we saw things that King Herod had built and we had swam in the Dead Sea. And I mean, we had we'd done about everything there was to do in Israel. But I wanted to get to Jerusalem because as a Christian, I wanted to walk where Jesus walked. 
And I wanted to see as a Christian where he was crucified. And I wanted to see as a Christian where he was buried. And I wanted to see the empty tomb. So I'd been in Jerusalem a little while, but I couldn't wait to get to Jerusalem because I wanted to see as a Christian what Jesus had done for me. And the last day we were in Israel, we walked the, the pathway of the last days of Jesus. I took a few pictures so I could show you some of these. Go to the first one if you would. Um, this would have been the exact place where, where Jesus stood with Pilate and Barabbas. And Pilate said, who should I release to you? At that point, there wasn't a roof on it, but these actual stones would have been the stones that Jesus and Pilate and Barabbas and the people would have stood on when Jesus said, who should I release to you? Jesus called the, the Christ or Barabbas. And they all shouted Barabbas. And he said, well, what should I do with Jesus? Uh, and they all, shouted, they all yelled, crucify him. That would have happened right here. As a matter of fact, go to the next picture if you would. You can barely see it. You can't even see it in that picture. There is a circle where, where it kind of gets real bright. They carved like game boards in the floor. Remember where it says they, they gambled for Jesus' clothes? That would have been. There were all these stones in that palace that had, I mean, like, like what we'd see, a wheel of fortune, kind of a game board drawn into the stone. You can barely see the edge of the circle there where you could cast down dice and, you know, you could place your lot on, hey, I'll take 10 or 8 or whatever, you know, kind of the first Vegas casino gaming rooms. This would have been the exact location where the soldiers would have gambled for Jesus' clothes. Go to the next picture if you would. You, you leave that passage and you begin what's called in Jerusalem the Via Della Rosa or the, the final steps of Christ. One of the coolest things in Jerusalem for me, go to the next picture if you would, was the old city. Um, you can see kind of down in, in the corner here. These were stones that were probably placed in the last 500 years, small, tight. But these big stones they had dug up, these would have been stones between Pilate's, Pilate's palace and Golgotha that were there at the time of Christ. These huge stones would have been stones that literally Jesus may have walked over with his cross as he went that last day. Go to the next picture as you would. They would have taken him to the place called Skull Hill, which you can understand now if you've never seen a picture of it, why Golgotha was called Skull Hill. You can see the eye sockets and the nose there. and He would have been crucified right up on top of that. Go to the next picture if you would. They would have taken him to this garden tomb where they believed that Jesus was laid and go inside if you would. Uh, there's the empty cavern that they say that uh, from about 200 years after Jesus' death till now has been remembered as a place where Jesus was laid, but, but he's no longer there. I think that's it. Go to the next slide if, if you would. And I looked at all that, and man, that day, you know, I don't want to say I was, in, I was on cloud nine because my heart was heavy just recounting and thinking of what Jesus had done for me. And as I walked that last day of Jesus' life and I experienced all those things that he had to experience, and you look across at the Mount of Olives, which is real close proximity to Jerusalem, and you see where Jesus would have ascended from, um, you, you have a real overwhelming feeling that, uh, man, Jesus loved me this much. He did this for me. And then you read a verse that says, this is the way. That's the way you're supposed to love your wives. And it brings it into a whole nother perspective. You see, a, a husband, first and foremost, is a servant to his wife and to his family. A husband, the type of husband that Ruth and Mary needed, was somebody who was sensitive because it was difficult times. And a husband like Ruth and Mary needed was someone who was spirit-led. And, you know, I could have preached a sermon today to just tell moms how great they are, and they are great. Or I could have preached a sermon today that made all of us recognize how we can serve them better, love them better, maybe just be better Christians in the world by being spirit-led, sensitive, servant-minded people 
who really make a difference in our world. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you right now and we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to open and read the word of God, because it does lead us. And God, I pray as a church that we'll always be spirit-led, that we won't be led by some fad we read in a book or in a magazine, but Lord, that we'll pray and we'll seek you and we'll read your word. And as a church, we'll always say, this is what God says. This is what God's word says. And Lord, today we have studied carefully what God's word has said about the men and the lives of these great women who make up the family tree of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, Ruth, Mary. And Lord, we've looked at kind of the men behind the scenes that allowed these women to navigate difficult life. We've seen today how we can be better uh, children to our mothers. We've seen how we can be better husbands to our wives. We've seen how we can be better parents to our children. But most importantly, we've just seen what a Christian looks like. What someone who walks with God looks like. They're spirit-led. They make decisions based on God told me this or God's word says this. They're people who are sensitive. They always think about how their life and decisions and habits and hobbies impact the people around them. And they're sensitive to make sure that others are taken care of in their life. And, Lord, they're servants. They live their life to serve other people so other people's lives can be better. Lord, give us men in this congregation and women in this congregation who will serve our mothers in this way, who will serve our families in this way, men specifically who will serve our wives in this way. And, God, I pray in Jesus' name in a special way that you will allow our church to be made up of spirit-led, sensitive, servant-minded people who impact this community in the world in a radical way for Jesus Christ. Thank you for our time in your word today. Thank you for the challenges that hopefully you've placed on hearts in this room today. And God, may all of us leave not only challenged, but changed in our thinking about how we can be better, not only for the moms in our life and the wives in our life, but Lord, just in general for you in our world. We love you and we need you. We pray that your blessing will be on us and our families today. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Here's what I want you to do. If you are brand new today,